So the, there are there are costs to doing doing prior authorizations. Those costs are borne by the providers and by the practices, and there are savings to be realized. But those savings are, are realized by the insurance companies that that put them in place, and and that's really the trade-off that we were looking at. And that regardless of how big the costs are or how you estimate them, the fact of the matter is these are savings that are being realized by insurance companies and the costs of achieving those savings are being passed along to the to the providers. And that's what we really wanted to draw out. Not not that we had the better estimate than somebody else or what the exact estimate is, but that um, the concept that there are material costs to doing prior authorization to the practices that that ought to be taken into account when an insurance company wants to place that into effect, that ought to be part of the conversation. That was Christopher Morley, our guest this week, talking about prior authorizations, or PAs, a bureaucratic headache well known to anyone in primary care, in which a physician's office must complete additional paperwork or phone calls to a patient's insurance company in order to get a medication or procedure covered by the insurance. This used to be fairly rare but it has dramatically increased in frequency over the last 20 years or so. Dr. Morley set out with some colleagues to try to quantify how much the PA process may cost, and moreover, to help us all think about who really pays those costs. Ultimately, it's our patients. This is Review of Systems, your podcast from the Harvard Medical School Center for Primary Care, and I'm Audrey Provenzano. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Can you just introduce yourself? I'm Dr. Chris Morley. I'm the chair of the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I also serve as the vice chair for research in the Department of Family Medicine, and I have a, a, a joint appointment in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're going to talk with us about some research you did on prior authorizations. What is the rationale for prior authorization? It was widely perceived that this was being done as a means to control cost, both to restrict access to more expensive medications or to stick to a formulary, or to control costs simply by making the, the process of ordering more, more advanced tests and procedures and, and drugs slightly more difficult, and you, you basically gain uh, some cost savings in the attrition when people don't follow through or you, you have grounds to deny. Now, that's, that second concept is a little, a little bit accusatory towards the insurance companies, and I don't want to leave the, only the bad dangling out there. There are good uses for prior authorization as well. Controlling inappropriate costs is something we should all favor, and also having a double check on ramping people up to new or exotic treatments or things that don't have an evidence base behind them or things that are unsafe is certainly something that, as a system, having a double check is not, not necessarily a, a, a bad thing. So there are both good and bad arguments for prior authorization. But that's a little bit of the history. Okay, that's really helpful. Prior to your study, there were a couple of studies out there that showed the prior authorization burden could cost as much as $80,000 per physician FTE, which is wild. Where did those estimates come from? So a couple of different studies came up in the the $80,000 range. One famous one was by 
uh, Lawrence Casalino and and colleagues. And what they did was essentially went back and uh, surveyed physicians and asked them uh, how much time they were spending on prior authorization requests. And they asked physicians from across a, a wide range of different specialties and types of organizations. So you have two things that, that potentially drove the cost up. Now, prior authorization happens in a lot of different contexts, and they were trying to get a wide range of views. Uh, so one thing that drove, drives the cost up is if they're, if they're mixing uh, surgeons in, in high-dollar exclusive practices versus primary care docs at an FQHC, for example, you have very different uh, bases for the costs uh, in terms of the, the multiplier when you look at the number of hours spent. Um, and the other, the other thing that will dramatically impact uh, the, the estimate of a cost is if you ask someone after the fact about something that kind of, frankly, annoys them, the magnitude of that cost, whether it's the cost financially that you, you calculate after multiplying the hours by, um, by an estimated um, salary level, for example, or the, the raw cost in terms of the time itself, it's going to be magnified. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what, and, and what you have is, in, in, are several biases. You have self-reporting bias. Rather than an external or objective observer, you have, the, you have self-report, as well as a recall bias operating, where this isn't something they're recording at the time, but they're saying, how much time did you spend this week or last month? And that's going to get a little bit, a little bit of a nudge upwards, or maybe a lot of a nudge upwards. Mm-hmm. And if the raw calculation seems high, the aggravation factor certainly wasn't. So, um, but but it is it is certainly a high end uh, estimate compared to some of the other things that some of the other methods have picked up that like like the ones we used, and we'll talk about, I suppose, in a second. There was another study that also looked slightly earlier than than Dr. Castellino's study um, was published uh, the, the prior year by Julian Sikowski and colleagues. And they actually looked across the board at not just prior authorization, but all sorts of administrative burden and how many people they hired to deal with dealing with insurance companies and, and that sort of thing. And they came up with an estimate of around $85,000 per FTE physician, or roughly 10% of revenue. But again, that was that was an expansive survey that basically took the kitchen sink and apples and oranges and lumped them all together. So how did you do your study and what did you find? Sure. So what we, we took a different tack in our study. We actually went and asked the, asked the, the practices at the time that they were doing any sort of prior authorization activity, whether it was you know, making the first phone call, the follow-up phone call, gathering documentation. We asked the practices who were participating to start what we call a card uh, for a card study. And that card would have different information where we would record the type of event, whether it was a radiologic study, a, a new medication, the type of payer, um, the type of person who was working on the prior authorization event. We would ask every person who touched that prior authorization event to record information about themselves. So we knew roughly how many minutes the physician was spending, how many, or, or, or the nurse practitioner, how many 
minutes were spent by a nurse, how many uh, minutes were spent by office staff and so forth. On that prior author authorization event, we knew the type of, of request that was being made. We knew the type of payer. We also had practice characteristics. So we knew if the practice was at the time, this was more uh, more of a variable than it is today, but we knew whether the practices um, had a functioning e EHR, whether they were achieving meaningful use, and we're still, relative today, the early days of EHR implementation. Um, we knew whether they were hospital-owned, a solo or, or small practice, um, whether they were an FQHC. So we knew factors about the practice as well. And then what we did is at the end of, of a six-week period, we tabulated all of the all of the prior authorization events, and we were able to slice and dice them into how much was spent by different types of payers, how much time was spent. We were able to extrapolate using workforce uh, data uh, on, on average salary levels, how much the prior each prior authorization event cost, and we were able to develop means for prior authorizations and so forth. And that told us that it was variable between practices, and we found that some things like being sort of ahead of the curve using EHRs were potentially helpful, um, but it was too small a study to really say that definitively, but we were inferring that that might have been a help in, in at least one case. And we were looking at costs per, per FTE physician in the, uh, in the five, four to five figure range, somewhere between three and $5,000 per per FTE physician, but that was restricted solely on the raw information taken about the, the activity around an individual uh, prior authorization case multiplied out by the number of prior authorization cases. So basically, we weren't getting lots of recall bias that we were recording in real time. And so if there are other expenses that would potentially be related to prior authorization uh, activity or more generally to to insurance company or, or administrative burden uh, activity, then we probably didn't catch that. So if you have people who are hired specifically to deal with prior auth, we only spent the time they actually dealt with prior auth, not the fact that they were hired by the practice and you can't hire a person by the minutes they spend on the prior auth. You either need the position on or you don't. Um, so there might have been some inefficiency in, in having the person on board in the first place. We were only capturing the time they were spending actually engaged directly in the prior auth. We also weren't capturing things that physicians or, or other practice staff do to potentially make prior authorization events less stressful, like study the formulary, uh, the drug formulary for each payer and know in advance what they have to do for the prior auth authorization requests to make them go smoothly. So that's a lot of time that people might be spending at a practice, either uh, sitting around waiting for the prior authorization event to happen while they, they do other things and the position gets hired, and they wouldn't be hired if there wasn't this prior auth uh, activity happening. So after spending you know a lot of time thinking about this and looking at what data is available, what do you think is probably um, the most true estimate? So I... I it's tough to say because that while there are there are hundreds of papers written on prior authorization at this point, um, I I am not familiar with a study that's that's comprehensively looked at uh, you know, across systems and really come up with a, with a strong estimate. But I would I would hazard to guess that that drawing a line between our 
uh, our low estimates, which we know are low, but that, that, that have measurable costs, somewhere in the three to $5,000 per FTE range, knowing that we miss a lot of the costs that happen, and looking at the out uh, the, the outward bounds, the upper bounds of, of things that have been measured, and those would be in 2008, 2009 dollars, the $80,000. So those are even higher at this point. Yeah. I would suggest that that a true cost is somewhere in the fifty to sixty thousand dollar range. What you're talking about per, per per FTE, and what you're talking about potentially is um, whether you take our low estimates and add a little or subtract a little from the high estimates in the past that have been made in the past. Um, you're certainly looking at potentially the difference of having a staff member on board right. or not. Yeah. Right. It, it, it's costing you the ability to have a staff member who's doing something else, mm-hmm. whether that's a piece of a staff member um, or a low-paid staff member, or if you go up to the eighty to ninety thousand dollar range or adjust forward for the for the decade that's transpired since the Castellino and Sikowski studies. If you're talking, you know, if their estimates were anywhere close to true, and you're you're pushing a hundred thousand dollars at this point. Um, it's the difference between either a piece of a of an administrator or or, or an office assistant to potentially, you know, hiring a substantial portion of a of a nurse practitioner or PA or 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 a bachelor's level level nursing staff. So it makes a difference. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I I completely agree that, you know, we should all be mindful of cost and trying to, all other things being equal try to utilize the lowest cost option first. So in that way, I I understand the rationale for PAs. um, But on the other hand, there are 65 different Medicare Part D plans in Massachusetts only. I I, I don't even know how many private drug plans there there are. And there's all these pieces of software that you can put on your phone or that you can mesh with your EMR that say they help you choose the lowest cost medication that's on formulary for a patient's drug plan, but if the drug plan isn't up to date or if your software isn't up to date, it doesn't work. And, you know, I've tried a bunch of them and it's just, it, it is really difficult. And I really wonder if at the end of the day, any of this really saves money and the cost and aggravation is, well, I mean, the cost is debatable, but somewhat knowable, the aggravation is very high and I suppose unknowable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think I think in terms of the cost, uh, one thing that I think is the takeaway message, and people want to know how much it costs, and they they, they want to see the zeros. I think as as one of the researchers who's worked in this area, what I would de-emphasize is the size of the cost, um, because we know our estimate is low. We know we we can assume, knowing what we know about research, that that the the decade-old estimates from from others that used recall-based surveys were probably a little high. But the point in either case is that there are costs. This is not a a non-significant cost. It's not a throwaway event that people do in the background. And those costs are in the thousands. They're measurable costs that, that certainly impact a practice, whether they impact it a little or a lot. And given the amount of aggravation, there is an aggravation factor that absolutely has costs. We just haven't found the most streamlined way to calculate those costs. Now, the question becomes who bears the cost and who bears the savings? So I can tell you just from common sense, from general experience, and I think 
most people would agree that a for-profit insurance company or even a non-profit payer who, who has to still meet a bottom line is not going to do something if they don't have to do it and it costs money. And moreover, they're going to do things that will save money or make money. And if this didn't save it, save the payer money, they simply wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Often in these economic conversations about the, the, the business of medicine, we talk about savings, but we don't think about very often who is saving money, who is expending money, and where that distribution occurs. So people will often talk about, uh, for example, what, what will save the, the system money, but they'll, they won't pause to think that, that maybe hospitals make money off of a particular procedure that others are talking about wanting to stop because, you know, for example, uh, having things that could be handled outpatient show up in the emergency room. We, we, we believe that everybody's on board with preventing avoidable emergency room visits, but there may be hospitals that actually make money by having that mm-hmm. be the intake system. Mm-hmm. And, and the assumption that the hospitals would want to save the system money is false. And just, just as uh, with, with prior authorization, if insurance companies were not realizing an economic benefit from pursuing this activity, they probably would not. There is some evidence in single-payer or public systems that prior authorization procedures can be beneficial if they're part of a central strategy that does control costs for the system that get passed on because the the payer and the payee are are more enmeshed with one another and both are enmeshed with society in a much more intricate and and intimate way. Mm -hmm. And that those cost savings also become enmeshed in with, with with patient safety or evidence-based goals that prior off can potentially be, be also useful in, in achieving. In our fractured system, the concept that a payer, an insurance company, is solely doing these procedures, these prior author- authorization procedures for patient safety, it, it, it flies in the face of basic logic they must be doing doing these procedures because it's saving the money, making the money. And without a mandate, it's it's unclear that they would be doing so if they if if it were an actual cost to them. So the there are there are costs to doing doing prior authorizations. Those costs are borne by the providers and by the practices. And there are savings to be realized, but those savings are, are realized by the insurance companies that, that put them in place. And, and that's really the trade-off that we were looking at in that regardless of how big the costs are or how you estimate them, the fact of the matter is these are savings that are being realized by insurance companies and the costs of achieving those savings are being passed along to the, to the providers. And that's what we really wanted to draw out, um, the concept that there are material costs to doing prior authorization to the practices. Right, right. So part of the reason this topic came across my radar is that there was a lawsuit in California recently in which an Aetna executive admitted during a deposition that he never actually looked at the patient's medical records when he was making a determination to deny or authorize a treatment. I, I, I would like to hope that this is this situation is just a complete outlier, um, but I have to say it's, it's, it's hard not to be cynical about this kind of process when you see this kind of admission where you know, I, I don't know the medical particulars of the case, but if the person making the determination didn't even know 
the exact details of this patient's case? How could they really make a clear assessment of whether the patient needed the medication or not? Well, I think that that goes back to the concept of that, that I was alluding to. And I, again, this is speculative on my part, but we know that insurance companies, that they, they live on the float. They have large amounts of money they take in and they pay, pay out large amounts of money. And often, at least a part of their profit margin is realized when they are able to hold on to large sums of cash that generate interest. Oh. And the, the longer they can delay payments, the more money that as, as financial institutions, which is what they really are, the, the, the more they, they can realize in savings. And realistically, they also make money when people give up or they don't file things in the first place. So they right. simply walk away, right? You can say somebody has 10 benefits. If you make half of those benefits so difficult to utilize, you can tell them they have the benefits, but if they don't utilize half of them, you've, made, you've just made money. Um, so I, I think those are those are very basic under basic precepts of how insurance companies make money. In addition to the the, the prima facie way in that they manage risk and they, they basically place bets and they they uh, they basically play the odds on people and that that they're going to take in better premiums than they pay out on a, on a given person and that they balance those risks across populations eventually to their own benefit. Um, that doesn't always work out in their favor, so they have to enhance those revenue streams by doing things like uh, by not paying things if they can avoid it or having claims not happen or simply by delaying. They make money when they when they delay. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that the that a default mechanism would be to delay. And then even if they know they're going to lose on a particular case or that they're eventually going to pay something out, the longer they can hold out and the, 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 the more people go away and give up on claims, the more they, they leave uh, principles intact for investment and so forth. Now, I'm making a very broad set of statements that are, one, somewhat speculative, and two, certainly don't describe every insurance company in existence. And I'm sure that if there are plenty of insurance executives who might hear me say that and say, well, that's not how we do business or that's not how any of us do business. Well, some of you do business that way. <laughs> uh, uh, and that's, I, I, so I, I, I don't want to make that as, a, as too sweeping a statement. And I don't want to, to place too much fact other, uh, into what I'm saying. I'm saying this is, this is a logical argument. When you see lots of things happening, you can start to surmise that something's going on. And when you see insurance companies suddenly start pushing prior authorization and you know what an insurance company does at the end of the day, it makes money. That's what it's there to do. And that's, our, that's the precept of our for-profit, <laughs> yeah, our, our fundamentally for-profit uh, healthcare system in the U.S. They're, they're, they are incentivized by the profit motive. And it's the people on the other side that are supposed to be guarantors, uh, the guarantors of, of health and, and quality. And the, the cost and the efficiency and what people want is supposed to be determined by the market. And the expertise in the healthcare uh, decision making is supposed to be made on the medical side. And these things, ex healthcare comes out of the tension between these two goals. And mm -hmm. So it simply logically lands on the fact that insurance companies are going to do this if, if, it, if it makes the money. So I'm not surprised at all by, by the outcome of, of, the, of, the, of the California case. It certainly stands to reason with anything we, we've seen uh, from prior authorization. 
I mean, prior authorization always has upsides and downsides. In a study that was conducted in Israel uh, on the use of antiretroviral drugs in people with, with HIV or AIDS, you saw severe delays in treatment when, when people were moving up the scale in, in, in antiretroviral and pot- potentially endangering the public because you have people now who are carrying a higher viral load right. and it's untreated. You also had a study that looked at opioids and the and and what was actually designed as a means to limit long-acting opioid prescription. What happened when when they introduced prior authorization requirements for long-acting opioids? The the long-acting opioids prescription went down, but short-acting opioids went up. So people game the system on both sides. People will will have to work around the system. And it's constantly a game of cat and mouse. And I think the the thing at the end of the day, whether we're talking about physician frustration or costs to the practices or who's saving money, at the end of the day, the three examples I just gave result in poor patient care. And, And these are poor patient outcomes. You know, water will find its level. If the physicians want to prescribe an ARB instead of an, an, uh, an ACE inhibitor, they're going to find a way. If people are demanding opiates and, and opiates are legal, they will find the opiate formulation that they can get through. And when you decide to place administrative burdens on, on acquiring uh, something like an antiretroviral, you are going to reduce its usage, but potentially at the risk of the public. So these these things have other costs other than how much time or money it's costing practices or how much time and money it's saving insurance companies. Hmm. Dr. Morley, thank you so much for your time and sharing your expertise on this topic. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Review Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, to find our podcast library, and please subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and rating, subscribe wherever you listen, it helps others find the show, and share us on social media with your friends and colleagues. A huge thank you to our assistant editor, Parsa Irfani, for his critical work in publishing each episode. You can find me on Twitter at AudreyMDMPH, and our show at ROS Podcast us feedback and suggestions, or you can email us at reviewsystemspod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.